Well, last week we began to look at a series on the life and the uh, teachings of Jeremiah, an ancient prophet who lived 2,600 years ago. Um, what we know about him is that he had an unusually clear vision. He was close to God. He saw things, both good and bad, for what they were. Last week we learned a little bit about him and the role of a prophet in the life of the nation of Israel, that he was someone who saw what was wrong as well as what was right and wasn't satisfied until the wrong things were put right. He was never apathetic. This week, we want to look at the message, what he had to say. And as I said last week, Jeremiah is a long book. It's the longest book in the Bible by word count. Um, and I'm going to try to summarize as much as I can the message that he had. We're going to do a lot of Bible reading today, probably more than we've done here ever before. And um, I will also try to explain it, so I hope it's not too tedious. But I want you to know up front that whatever Jeremiah was, he was not a populist. He didn't put his finger into the wind to see which way public opinion was leaning. He didn't conduct a poll to figure out what people wanted him to say. Jeremiah was speaking for God, and his goal was to show how rotten things were, and good, but the society that he lived in was corrupt from within and without, and so he wanted to point out that there were selfish politicians and corrupt courts and ungodly priests and greedy business leaders. So the topic for today is what went wrong. 800 years before Jeremiah, God had established an agreement with his people. It's called a covenant, a word that means more, has more in, in, in its uh, meaning than just a contract. And it was really a series of if-then statements, although it was also something graciously instituted by God and initiated toward them. In other words, God did this for his chosen people. And the agreement or covenant you could summarize with the word if. This is what God said, if you do this, then I will do that. And Jeremiah reminds the people of the covenant that they have with God in chapter 11. I'm going to read a few verses here that just describe how this works. He says, listen to the terms of this covenant and tell them to the people of Judah and to those who live in Jerusalem. Tell them that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Cursed is the one who does not obey the terms of this covenant, the terms I commanded your ancestors when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the iron smelting furnace. I said, obey me and do everything I command you, and you will be my people and I will be your God. Then I will fulfill the oath I swore to your ancestors to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, the land you possess today. And then he tells what happened. And spoiler alert, they blew it. Verse 8. But, then, but they will not listen or pay or they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So I brought on them all the curses of the covenant I had commanded them to follow, but they did not keep. Then the Lord said to me, there's a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. They've returned to the sins of their ancestors who refused to listen to my words. They followed other gods to serve them. Both Israel and Judah have broken the covenant I made with their ancestors. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. And we'll talk more about that in subsequent weeks, about how God had, through Jeremiah, predicted that they would face disaster. What we're to understand here is that God established this covenant, but they didn't keep it. And in the early chapters of the book of Jeremiah, we learn some of the specifics of what went wrong. And that's going to be most of what we talk about today. So if the covenant is the if of God's agreement with his people, what comes next is the what, the case against his people. Now the big picture here is unfaithfulness. 
What went wrong? Well, Jeremiah uses the metaphor of marital unfaithfulness to describe how the people have abandoned him. And here's the general case he builds against the people. Starting in the first verse of chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me, that's Jeremiah, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth and how as a bride you loved me. Again, he's using a metaphor here. And followed me through the wilderness. Israel was holy to the Lord. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us into the barren wilderness, through the barren wilderness? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land. And then he gives a specific example of unfaithfulness. In this case, it's political. This is verses 36 and 37. He said, you'll be disappointed by Egypt as you were by Assyria. You will also leave the place, that place with your hands on your heads, for the Lord has rejected those you trust. You will not be helped by them. So I said last week that they lived at a time of great uh, geopolitical confusion and fear and upheaval, and they were caught between all the superpowers of the ancient world, particularly the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians. And they were tempted, in fact, they actually... Uh, were more than tempted to ally themselves with whichever political alliance they thought would bring them the most advantage, rather than as God asked them to do, to trust Him even in the midst of vulnerability. And they have some of the same have some of the same temptations that we have in our day. For example, in the interests of survival, they were tempted, in fact, willing to abandon not just their trust in God, but betray their deepest values in pursuit of earthly influence. So they were willing to give up their standards in order to have leaders that would in some way secure their safety. God's consistent message to them through all of this was don't fear. Instead, put your trust in me. One example of this is much later in the book in Jeremiah 42, 11, when he says, do not be afraid of the king of Babylon whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. So the big picture of what's went, what had gone wrong is general unfaithfulness to God. But then Jeremiah gets specific about what's wrong. And I want to put this in three categories. And the first of these is idolatry. It's probably for us the most difficult one to understand and get our heads around. Because you're probably thinking idolatry, didn't that go away a long time ago? I mean, we don't bow down before idols. And maybe there are a few people who bow down before a Buddha or someone who has a totem pole in their backyard. But basically, we don't do that, right? Well, before we read how Jeremiah describes the problem, it's important for us to understand how the ancient world worked. The question in the ancient world wasn't, do you believe in God or not? Everyone believed in God. The question was, which God? In theory, Israel believed in the one true God. They were the only nation uh, on that time who were monotheistic, having just one God. Most of their neighbors had multiple gods. In fact, they often had them represented by literal statues manufactured out of wood, stone, metal, etc. Many of the ancient gods that the other folks had were regional or ethnic. So when they went to battle, they believed that there was both a human battle as well as a cosmic one going on. So if they won, they gave credit to the gods. If they lost, they sometimes even adopted the gods of those who defeated them. In fact, one of the things that happened is they would worship multiple gods just to make sure their bases were all covered. The worship of these gods often included wild parties, ritual prostitution, and child sacrifice. So we think of religion today as benign, 
tame, predictable, and peaceable. But it wasn't true then. Now here's how Isaiah, or excuse me, Jeremiah describes the problem of idolatry in Israel. And I'm going to warn you, it's a little bit graphic. I've edited it to try to make it go from R to PG-13, really. But I am going to read what uh, Jeremiah says. He says, has a nation ever changed its gods? Yes, yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. How can you say I am not defiled? I have not run after the Baals. See how you behaved in the valley? Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. But you you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods, and I must go after them. They say to wood, you are my father, and to stone, you give me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save me. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. For you, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. And then he adds, it's not just wrong, it's foolish. This is from chapter 10. He says, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do you no, do no harm, nor can they do any good. No one is like you, Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not fear you, king of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise leaders of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. They are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. In verse 12, God made made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the nations by his understanding. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. The images he makes are a fraud. They have no breath in them. And then in chapter 7, the last verse or two of Jeremiah chapter 7, he tells how bad it got. Verse 30, the people of, of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declare the Lord. They have set up detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. And then he says, They burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it ever enter my mind. So this idea of child sacrifice, he said, that would never occur to me. That's not something I would ever think of, and yet you're doing it. Now, the second category, so that's idolatry. The second category is unrighteousness. In chapter 8, he mentions their general disobedience of the basic moral and ethical code that God had given them. This is from chapter 8, verse 6, beginning with verse 6. None of them repent of their wickedness, saying, What have I done? My people do not know the requirement of the Lord. How can you say, We are wise, for we have the law of the Lord? Since they have rejected the word of the Lord, what kind of wisdom do they have? Then he says this. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. Nor do they even know how to blush. So not only do they not care about the rules, and by the way, we're not big on rules either, but Jeremiah's position here is that there's great wisdom in the standards and code that God has laid out for us. But they are not only ignoring the rules, they're apathetic or indifferent. In fact, they even celebrate the evil that they do. Now, just to give you a couple of examples, because there are more than a dozen, Jeremiah mentions several categories of disobedience throughout the book. I want to just mention two, because our time's limited. 
And the first is deceitfulness and lies. This is from chapter 5. Go up and down in the streets, down the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. Although they say, as surely as the Lord lives, still they are swearing falsely. Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You struck them, but they felt no pain. You crushed them, but they refused correction. They made their faces harder than stone and refused to repent. My observation is is that a culture that disregards truth soon is governed not by, by ideas, but by power plays. And it's difficult for us to resolve conflicts with one another if we each have our own truth. Another example is greed. This is from chapter 6, verse 13. He says, From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. Then in chapter 9, verse 23, he says this, This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that's God, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. So the first category, again, was idolatry. The second, unrighteousness. And the third major category is injustice. Let me read a section from later in chapter 5, beginning with verse 25. He says, Your wrongdoing, wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Among my people are the wicked who lie in wait like men who snare birds and like those who set traps to catch people. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit and they do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless and they do not defend the just cause of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? And then from chapter 7, he he says this. He says, If you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place and in the land I give your ancestors forever and ever. Now, you can flip this and say, If you oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, and shed innocent blood, then you will not be able to stay in this place. And then from uh, chapter 22, he says this. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who's been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. What Jeremiah is doing here is speaking out against the unjust treatment of vulnerable populations in their day, in the ancient world, which was typically the poor, widows, orphans, and refugees. It's very similar to the categories of vulnerable people in our world today. Now, he summarizes all of this, um, all of this, uh, all the things that are wrong in chapter 9, verse 13, when it says, The Lord said, It is because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my law. Instead, they have followed the stubbornness of their hearts. What he's saying is that what grieves God and Jeremiah most is not that they've broken a few rules, even if that's not good, it's the condition of their hearts. They are stubborn and rotten to the core, and what they need most is new hearts. Now, he does give some hope. Chapter 31, he describes a day when he believes um, there will be a time when people will have renewed hearts. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will put my law in their minds, 
and write it on their hearts. I shall be their God and they will be my people. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, I hope that all of what we've just talked about gives you an outline of what Jeremiah has to say. Now, he did this for 40 years. So this is a long time to give the same stump speech over and over again. But the people ignored him. Eventually, though, God's patience ran out. And at this point, we're going to move from the what of the covenant to the if of what they actually did to the then, the consequences that God brings on them for their actions. Now, Jeremiah does something interesting here. He really shows sin for what it is. We often think of sin as attractive. Um, But what he's saying is it's not attractive or worth it. In fact, it's something that's stupid, pointless, and futile. Here's an example from chapter two. Your wickedness will punish you your backsliding will rebuke you. In other words, he's saying the punishment for sin is the sin itself. In other words, you pursue these things, they will punish you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the God Almighty. Although you wash yourselves with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. Then from chapter four, my people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They're skilled at doing evil. They do not know how to do good. And then he says, here are the consequences. Chapter 13, if you ask yourselves why these things have happened to me, it is because of your many sins, because you have forgotten me and trusted in false gods. Now along the way, and this is just one example, he gives the specifics of what's gonna happen to them And this is one example from chapter five. He says, I'm bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. We'll find out in a bit that that's the Babylonians, that they they will play a big role in this whole story. He says, their quivers are like an open grave. All of them are like our mighty warriors. They will devour your harvests and food, devour your sons and daughters. They will devour your flocks and herds, devour your vines and fig trees, and with the sword they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. And he even predicts how long all of this is going to take place. He says 70 years. So here's where he tells them this, one of the two places in the book of Jeremiah where he tells them this, chapter 25. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. For 23 years from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken to you again and again, but you've not listened. Now, the reason I read that, even though it's a little tedious, is it has been 23 years that he's been saying the same thing and they haven't listened. 23 years. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt. So he says, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to take you into exile, into Babylon, but realize it's not forever. I'm going to bring you back. It's going to be 70 years. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. But he's giving them some hope, even in the midst of announcing this destruction that's on its way. 
Now, I know that the idea of God judging people makes many of you feel uncomfortable or worse. In fact, some of you who may be just now exploring Christian faith, this is the reason you've been holding Christian faith at arm's length. Few actually like the messages that God has about judgment, and the rest are all sociopaths. Um, But it is important to acknowledge two things about judgment. First of all, even if we don't always admit it, we want justice. In fact, we can't live without it. When we've been mistreated, when we've been treated unjustly, we want there to be some kind of consequences, some kind of punishment. And it bothers us when someone gets away with murder, literally or figuratively. The second reality, and this is what we learned from Jeremiah and the other biblical writers, is that God is extremely patient with us. One of the features of Jeremiah is that there are a number of different examples where God gives them an opportunity to repent. In fact, there are several, maybe as many as a dozen. Know that Jeremiah did not take great joy in pronouncing God's judgment, his message of judgment. It bothered him and it bothered God. Neither of them wanted what they predicted to come to pass. If the people had responded properly, disaster could have been averted. Now, here's just one example of God granting the people a second chance. And it's very early in the book in chapter 3. Here it says in verse 11, The Lord said to me, Go proclaim this message. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord, and I will frown on you no longer. For I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God and have not obeyed me. Return, faithless people, and I will give you shepherds after your own hearts. That's leaders who will lead you with knowledge and understanding in those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land. Now, another spoiler alert here, the people did not turn back to God, and so he went through with his plan. But that didn't mean that the nation was without hope. Instead, God told them that a new day would be coming. This is in chapter 5, fairly early in the book. He says, yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. Chapter 16, he gets a little more specific. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. But it will be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north, out of all the countries who had banished them. For I will restore them to the land I gave their ancestors. So the most important story in the life of the nation of Israel was how God brought them out of Egypt, where they lived in slavery, through the desert, into the promised land. And he's saying, I'm going to give you a second story, maybe even greater, about the day when I bring you back from Babylon and the other places where the people have scattered and restore you to the land. Now, much of what I've presented so far is abstract and impersonal. It's about a group of people who lived over 2,600 years ago. And you want to say, well, what about us? How do we live it out? Well, how do we live it? Well, let me just say first, it's often easy to read the Bible and think, shame on them. And yet, we ought not be so fast to assume that this wasn't written to us as well. This part of Jeremiah's story should force us to ask some really hard questions. Where's our trust? Is it in God or a political party? And where's our, uh, and what about his promise to give us our daily bread? Or is our trust in a bank account? It's easy to assume that we're firmly in the camp of the good guys, but a sober assessment of our lives will reveal that there is something in this about all of us. Now, the first way that I believe we can live it out is that instead of idolatry, we need to put God first. You don't have to be religious to have an idol. An idol is anything that you put your hope in. 
Anything that replaces God at the center of your life or comes alongside God is an idol. The thing that you believe that if you had it, it would make you happy, or the thing that you believe if you lost it would make life scarcely worth living. And everyone has something in which they hope, something on which they lean, in which they trust, in which they fill their thoughts and occupy their imaginations. What distinguished the ancient Jewish people was that they believed, they had this insight that the only thing worth worshiping was their creator, the Lord God of all. The worship of anything else, for us, it might be science or knowledge, ethnic or national identity, wealth, power, pleasure, or fame. All those things are idols if they become the ultimate thing in our lives. We were made to put God at the center of our hearts and our lives. And blessed is the one whose hope is in the Lord. The second way to live, to live it out, is to avoid injustice and to seek to live good lives. Now, the idea of living godly lives today gets a bad rap, but I think that's because we often have run across people who have a long list of rules that they remind us of often and then rubber noses in it when we don't keep up to it, when we fail. But that's not what Jeremiah had in mind. He was thinking of a way of life that was good for everyone. As God's people, we have the opportunity to live out our values before a watching world. Some of you know that I've been reading um, a fair amount about the early Christian church for the first so three or 350 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. Those first Christians became known for their unusual behavior, at least in the world in which they lived. For example, in a world that practiced infant exposure, that's infanticide, where they abandoned unwanted children, most often girls, not only did the Christians condemn the practice, but they were known to rescue these children and raise them as their own. Thus, in a culture that valued or defined a person by virtue of their usefulness to society, Christians rejected that norm. They acted in a countercultural way and consistently cared for unwanted children at great cost for themselves. Just imagine taking on another child and the expense. I read once a U.S. Department of Agriculture report that said it cost about $200,000 to $250,000 to raise a child in our world. Just imagine in their world where they were closer to the margins what that would have cost. The news about the good practiced by Christians in those first three centuries spread widely. Even, and even today, among those who reject God and biblical values, many value the virtues of the Judeo-Christian tradition, even if they don't realize their source. That was not the way it was in the ancient world. It was much more of a world Thomas Hobbes describes, nasty, brutish, and short. But the Christians lived a dramatically distinct way of life, and they took their faith seriously. A third way that we can live it is to seek justice for the most vulnerable. In the ethical guidelines God gave his ancient people, he demanded justice for the poor, compassion and equity for foreigners and refugees. He told them to create structural mechanisms that protected the homeless from abuse and destitution, to create fair and equitable distribution of, of assets, including the land, and to have integrity in the judicial system. The temptation to set these things aside for our own personal gain is sometimes overwhelming. But we have to remain committed to the things that God cares about, to love the things that he loves, and to see others the way that he sees them. And the temptation to compromise is ever-present. That's why Jeremiah proposed a new way to view the health of a nation. It wasn't in how many military conquests they had or won. It wasn't in the value of whatever their, their equivalent of the stock market was. It was instead the way to value the nation and view the health of a nation was how faithful were they to the things that God asked of them. 
I mentioned last week that uh, when, Jerem- or when Jesus showed on the, up on the scene, some compared him to Jeremiah because of some of the things he said and did and demonstrated, they began to think he had some echoes of the life of Jeremiah. If Jesus came today, it's likely that he would run afoul of people on all sides of whatever debate we have today. Some would be angry about his exclusive truth claims and inflexible sexual ethics, and others by the parable he might tell about the good Muslim. He might tell people to empty their 401ks and give money to the poor. And when this happened, some on both sides might say what Jesus' contemporaries did. Let's get rid of this guy. Jeremiah's message should sober us, but it should also give us hope. It should point us to the way that God has for all of us, to live lives that are faithful to him, lives that are full of hope, realizing that God has great things for us in the future as we live faithfully for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of Jeremiah. They are sobering, they are convicting, um, but they also point us to the right way, the best way that you have for us. May we people, people who live it, who live these things out, people who honor you with our lives, putting you first, living good lives, and seeking justice for all. We pray this in Jesus' name.